The following conversation with nine-term U.S. Congressman Les O'Coin originally aired Wednesday, October 23, 2019 on The Wednesday Point on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Our guest this morning is Lessa Coyne, who represented Oregon's first congressional district from 1975 to 1993. He was the first Democrat since Oregon became a state to win that House seat. Described by the Oregonian in 1988 as, quote, the most powerful congressman in Oregon and one of the most influential members from the Northwest. Author of the memoir, Catch and Release, An Oregon Life in Politics. We are extremely honored to have him with us on our show today. It's so great to be here. So I have to do this first, of course. I have to do a little bit of a disclaimer. Before we begin, I want to add that all opinions voiced today are those of our guests and our own thoughts. They do not reflect the opinions of KPOV staff, board of directors, and volunteers. They're ours and ours alone. And we will voice them. Yes, we will. So welcome again. Thank you for being here. And I get to voice mine, too? Absolutely. Okay, good. That's great. Liz, the title of your book, Catch and Release, An Oregon Life and Politics, is a reference to your passion for fly fishing, right? Yes, but it's also an allegory Tell uh, us about for that. life itself. Uh, I say in the book that, you know, catching and releasing, succeeding and letting go, knowing how to let go and being able to do it, are really, um, it really fits life more than it does fishing. And uh, life, is, what is life if not having and then having not? We all go through this in our journey. You are a Central Oregon boy. Yeah, not born here, but uh, my mother, who was an abandoned mom and sole support, uh, moved to uh, Redmond in uh, the 19, uh, 1940s and raised us as a waitress uh, on waitress wages and tips. So with that humble childhood, what life lessons did you learn? You know, it's a great question, Louise. Um, I learned that you, um, well, I was never expected to be who I turned out to be. It, you know, it just no one would have guessed that, nor would I. But what I learned, I think, is that uh, you aren't limited. You can't. Uh, you are limited only if you let people limit you. And if you drop that and go as far as your mind and your zeal and your imagination and vision take you, then uh, who knows where you can end up. So I have a question. You mentioned that you were raised by your mother. Do you think being raised by a single mom gave you more empathy and respect for women? Well, there's no question about that. Um, and she was a single mother in the <clears throat> in the early 50s. And that was a time when uh, you you know you had uh, some misogyny uh, and more than today. And it was more accepted. And I saw my mother have to put up with that. She would tell us about it. And uh, I became quite a feminist as I uh, went into adulthood, as I always think about the, the road she, the path she, she followed. So I was not born in Oregon. I'm a transplant. But... Oh, no kidding. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It's shocking, oh. isn't it? <laughs> it's shocking. Uh, can but... we get a substitute here for <laughs> Well, Louise is here to help guide me along. That's but. right. I was born and raised in Portland. Oh, thank God. <laughs> 
So I wasn't really aware of Oregon politics till we moved here to 2001, which was a shock, 2001. But um, <clears throat> when I read the book, it seemed as if your first decision to run for Oregon office was prompted by the defeat of Oregon Senator Wayne Morris and the unthinkable election of Richard Nixon. Yes, yes. yes. And now it doesn't look all that bad. Well, but there's some parallels today in our situation. So I'm wondering, what can you tell us about your first decision to run for office that might inspire other people today who are in this situation and considering it? Well, I think there are two things that we... <clears throat> I'm sorry, I have to clear my throat. I'm finding a little cold. Um Two things that are important. Um, one is, even if we don't run for office, are we are we are we fulfilling our civic duty? Are we acting as civic citizens? Uh, the answer is today in America, no. Out of uh, most dem democracies, I think the latest statistic is that American Americans of voting age, uh, the rate of voting, actual voting ranks us 29th in the world which that's, means that's that pathetic it's it, this is the cradle of modern democracy and when we sit back and we we moan and and, and gripe about what's going on in washington dc we own it you know we own it and we have the power to change it and voters who say oh I, we can't do anything about it it's just you know that's hogwash mm -hmm. in this form of government we decide and so that's one part of it. The other part of it is I felt like I wanted to make a contribution. I wanted, I felt like I could um, do something worthy of uh, worthy to be remembered, and so I decided to run. Les, in your humble opinion, how do we inspire people? How do we get people out to vote? Isn't it terrible that we have to inspire people? Yeah, it really is. There are there are countries in the world where people will stand in line for hours, mm -hmm. hours. To get a get to exercise their franchise to 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 vote, and here we're talking about having to inspire Americans to vote, especially now with so much at risk. Uh, I don't know. I think the only way to 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 inspire them is to make people understand that if they don't vote, they're turning the democracy over to someone else. And that someone else might be might be a bunch of people who have altogether different ideas about freedom, women's rights, the environment, everything we care about. True. Let's go back to the book. I, I love that each chapter of Catch and Release is a, a short vignette about an episode in your <coughs> career, in your life, not necessarily about politics and not necessarily in chronological order. It kind of jumps around. In one of the chapters, you talk about your time in the South and a specific incident of racial hatred that happened right before your eyes. How did that influence your understanding of the racial divide in this country? That was most, what I was 19 years old, a buck private in the uh, Army at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and I went into Nashville, Tennessee, which calls itself then and now the Athens of the South. <laughs> And I Sorry. was. <laughs> no, I never heard that before. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Neither, I know about the music scene, but the but you were educated. Neither had I. And uh, I stayed at the YMCA, and I heard some noise outside my window, and I saw a, 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 two, a group, a, a line of two little children. It must have been twenty of them, 
in their Sunday best, little chiffon dresses and patent leather shoes and boys with bow ties and, and suits and two older uh, uh, chaperones. They were running down the, running down the street. And uh, the chaperones looked a little nervous. They were shooting glances up and down the street. I thought, hmm, strange, but why those furtive glances? Well, after breakfast, I walked into the town uh, uh, around the Athens of the South, (laughs) and uh, I heard a crowd roar. And I came around the corner, and there was a white racist mob. And I worked my way to the front of the line. The, the, this, this, the, the block had been roped off. And in the middle of the street, with their backs pressed against the wall, were those very children and their, and their escorts who had awakened me at the YMCA. And on each end of the street behind the police lines were snarling, yelling, screaming, angry white, uh, white mob. And as, as I say in the book, you don't know what a racist mob is until you're inside the belly of it. And it seizes your guts and, and makes your skin burn and drives you dizzy. And, and then a, a pink thunderbird came roaring around through the uh, police line, jumped the curb, and they tried to smash the children. They tried oh to kill the children. I was 19 years old. I was 19 years old. I had never seen anything like that. Nothing like that in, in Redmond. Of course, Redmond didn't have many blacks either. So I was uh, total naive. And uh, that that what you ask, well, how did that change me? Well, it it left me with a lifelong zeal to fight racism and every form of bigotry uh, that goes along with it including the kinds of bigotry and xenophobia and um, racism that have been given rise by the recent election in 2016 and hope will be corrected in 2020. Wow. I think we're okay. I was just looking at the time, but I have a question I wanted to ask you about that that takes my breath away. It's hard for me to come back in the moment because... Well, especially here in the Northwest, we never, fortunately, had to witness anything like that. But I, I think part of that has to do with our privilege and our whiteness. True. And we yeah. went to hear uh, an author the other night who wrote a book called White Topia. Oh. And it's about, you know, all these little white enclaves yeah. throughout the United States. And Bend is one of them. Yeah. And so, you know, the question on my mind is, what can we do? And, and I guess that's part of it. What, what can we do? Uh, so let's go to the next question that I had about the Oregon legislature. And when you got there, it was dominated by Democrats, but it took a Republican conservative pig farmer from Hermiston <laughs> to introduce groundbreaking legislation to legalize marijuana. And although it didn't pass at the time, that was surprising to, for me to hear that. You know, this was a time in, in Oregon and in the country when you had people of both parties able to look at the facts and think of their jobs as problem solvers rather than party promoters. And uh, Stafford Hansel was a pig farmer in, in Hermiston, and he was on the committee that, that voted out this bill to legalize marijuana. And uh, when we decided, we, when we voted it out and was getting ready to head to the floor, uh, Steve Kafori, the chairman, said, well, okay, he said sheepishly, who's going to carry the bill? And somebody laughingly said, well, let's let, Sta- let's let Staff- Stafford Hansel, the, the big farmer, carry it. Everybody cracks up. And, uh, and, uh, and Sta- Stafford said, 
I'll do it. And he did it. <laughs> I love it. And, it, you know, he crossed party lines, but he did the thing that was right, not what, what that was partisan, in a partisan way political. What a concept. Yeah. What a concept. So Those are, those are the days. Those were the days. We were talking about that Oregon legislative session in 1973, the famous one that lasted longer than any other, but I think got quite a bit done. And what we wanted to talk about is what were some of those proposals and the legislation that passed that year? There were some pretty amazing things. It was remarkable because we had a, once again, bipartisanship. We had a Republican governor, Tom McCall, who graduated from Redmond High School just like I did only 30 years earlier. <laughs> and uh, we both knew, by the way, we both knew that we were Redmond grads. And I used to see this, this six-foot-five uh, governor in the halls and towering above his entourage, and he would wave at me and say, Hi, classmate. <laughs> I and love it. Tom was wonderful. But he uh, proposed, and we passed, the Oregon Bottle Bill, statewide land use planning, uh, 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 environmental protection uh, for uh, beaches and 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 the like, and uh, it was a it was an amazing period, uh, just an absolutely amazing period. Uh, uh, I can go on, but you know it's a long list. It is, and and readers can find that in your book, Catch and Release. Yeah, you you can uh, you can either buy it or you can buy it. Or you can buy it, or you can. And you tried it. to get it online and couldn't. Well, it it was. I would like the Kindle version, and it wasn't in Kindle, so I made a little comment to Amazon that I would like the Kindle version. Yeah, we're working on an audio version of it. That would be very nice, and it is at the library, but there's a long waiting list. So, just so you know, awesome. Les, when you made the decision to run for Congress, did you realize how much time you'd be spending? Dialing for dollars, as you put it? Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it, the interesting thing here is that uh, the first time I ran, the Oregon legislature had passed a strict vo- uh, campaign contribution limit. And for the, uh, for the Congress, uh, the state limit was $75,000 in the primary and then another $75,000 in the general. Total. That means anything you would raise and anything anyone else would spend. And so that's $150,000. And in my judgment, people were just as informed, if not better, then under that regime than they are today with this tsunami of uh, dark money that's we, that, that we're spending. So it was, uh, it was, it was great. And I, the, the other thing about this, this uh, tidal wave of money. We back then, when we were limited, we we couldn't waste money on ta- uh, attack ads. We had right, to get our right. story across. You had to get to the point. Yeah, yeah. That that's the point. That's the point of the show, right? And the you point. really you really <laughs> did dial for dollars, right? Well, then I go to Congress, and my first race was one hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. Then the Supreme Court struck down the Oregon law. It wasn't citizens in United yet, but it struck down the Oregon law. And within about four or five years, I had to raise a million dollars for the seat that I had originally spent $150,000 for. That's an amazing difference. And today, today uh, Suzanne Bonamici, who I happen to like, who holds my seat, it stayed Democratic after, uh, as soon as I, uh, when I took it for the first time. Uh, she she has raised something like nine hundred thousand dollars. 
No, I, I'm more more than nine hundred thousand. I think it's nine hundred something. It's it's, it's a up lot there. of it's money. It's a lot of money. It's way too much. It's money. a lot of scratch. You it's, know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand. Well, I do understand, but I wish that we could go back to simpler times. I, you know, I, I see It'd that. It'd be a lot cleaner, I'll tell you. It, that. it would. It breaks my heart. But some of the things that you did do, you came into Congress post-Watergate yeah. and with a lot of other Democrats. And oh, so yeah. you were trying to make the process a little bit more open. And can you talk about some of the things that you were able to do at that time? It was really an exhilarating time. Uh, we, we came right after Watergate. And um, most of us who arrived, it was one of the largest classes of newcomers uh, in, or in uh, national history. Uh, we were veterans of the uh, Vietnam War protests, uh, the, the civil right, rights protests, and the sheer numbers gave a very large majority to the uh, and, and reinforcements to re- reformers who had already been there. We knocked over the seniority system. We banned closed-door meetings unless there was national security involved. Uh, we allowed people to uh, drop bills and offer them on the floor without getting anybody, any uh, political boss's approval. It was really a, quite an opening, and it, it put Congress mo- more on an equal basis with the imperial presidency that Richard Nixon's uh, presidency uh, happened to be. Because, I mean, they are co-equal branches of government. I think we forget that sometimes. Well, I think the occupant currently in the White House forgets that completely. Yeah, and he, he, he would like us to forget it. Ah, Les, Oregon Republican Senator Mark Hatfield and you were able to work together as a team to create positive economic development for Oregon. Yeah. Yes. One of the most significant of these was securing federal funding for Portland's east-west light rail system. I worked in Portland while that was being built. Oh, really? It was, a, it was a nightmare while it was being built, but now it's a <laughs> godsend. How did that partnership work and what positive impact did it have on Oregon? Mark Hatfield and I had the advantage of each being uh, members of our respective appropriations committees. And we were the only Oregonians on the Senate Appropriations Committee and the House Appropriations Committee. So there was a natural connection there. But the personality, Mark's personality, was very open and very bipartisan, and so was mine. I still have friends on the Republican side of the aisle today. John Kasich, who ran for president. Oh, know. yeah. He, he and I are, are friends. Well, Don't he, agree, but no. we, have, we're, we were friends. Well, he seems like a normal, rational human being that you could have a, a, a disagreement with. That's kind of nice to know, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so do you think that type of partnership is possible in this age of division that we're seeing? It's possible if we insist on it. Everybody has to... Um, has to audition for us as voters, don't they? And when they audition or campaign, uh, we, ought to, we ought to hold that out as part of the yardstick we measure our candidates by. Are you a fire-breathing f- fanatic that will put party first, or do you believe in putting country first? And, and if, if you say you do, then show us, tell us how. What would you do to demonstrate it? And then we can make choices uh, intelligently and change the complexion of this uh, this cur- current Congress. Sadly, the fire breathers are the sexy ones that get the news. 
That's one of the problems with the, with the media. It's one of the reasons I like community radio. And by the way, this station is just terrific. I, I wanted to start boogieing to your, uh, <laughs> to your, to your mu- music. I was sitting here and squirming in my chair. Oh, you know, gosh. if we don't have fun with it, the listeners won't have fun <laughs> yeah, with well, it. No. Do you want to dance? <laughs> sure. Maybe after the show. We have so many questions we want to ask you. We have this limited amount of time. And, you know, I saw uh, the Newt on TV the other day and you know i'm sorry i'm sorry to bring him up but um he was first elected the house in 89 and he became speaker in 95 so you had a little bit of time together in the house and i agree with this and i believe as as well as some political scientists that he was sort of the start of this really divisive his contract on america which is what i prefer to consider it just inflamed people i mean it just he he just changed all the rules broke all the rules and there was no longer that kind of common courtesy and dignity what's your take on all that i think that's the the precise uh, definition an accurate one about uh, new gingrich he came as a backbencher when i was uh, uh, in in the congress and his his first aim first target was not a democrat but his own party leader Bob Michael, the Republican leader, minority leader of, uh, from Illinois. And the reason he attacked uh, and tried to undermine and succeeded in doing so was that Bob Michael, though very conservative, would work with Democrats from time to time. And Gingrich didn't want any part of that. For Gingrich, politics is war, and the two parties are opposing armies. And this is, uh, you know, this is just not a way to run a democracy. No, and he's still that way. He still has that opinion. Yeah. Um, so do you think we're going to be able to move past this divisiveness? Only if we insist on it. I hate to keep coming back to the point. But, you know, that that's the nature of a democracy. We own it. We run it. Or we can set it out, and if we set it out, we leave it to people who uh, prefer the, the, the Gingriches or some other extreme. Less in Chapter 24, you close the chapter with the following quote. If I told it like it was, if I said to constituents, this is what I believe, these are the reasons I believe it, we may disagree, but I have too much respect for you to blow smoke, I want almost as much regard from voters who disagreed with me as those who concurred. That philosophy seems to be the same as a few of some of the more liberal Democrat candidates for president. Do you think that same approach will hold true today? You know, I think it holds true, and I am saddened that more politicians don't understand that you can politely disagree and be very clear in it, but show respect for the person who you disagree with and say, I hear what you're, where you're coming from. I get it, but I happen to disagree. Now, here are my reasons why you explain them and then you say now i hope by giving you my explanation as honestly as i can i hope you will at least respect my my me for for doing so and then um, sometimes i found that people would would thank me for it if people would like to find out more you have a facebook page is that correct i do Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information about Congressman Les O'Coyne, check out his Facebook page. And for our program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. 
drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.